At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you've been at Wildwood the last several weeks, you know that we are walking through a series that we have entitled The Lord of the Church. This series is anchored in Revelation chapters 1 through 3. And in the book of Revelation, we have seen that it is a revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. That's right. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's revealed in the first three chapters as the Lord of the church. It begins with this glorious revelation of the person of Jesus that the apostle John sees while in exile on the Isle of Patmos. But then it continues as Jesus dictates letters to seven real churches that were in that time in a location called Asia. Today, it would be modern-day Turkey. Letters that were sent, we've seen already, to the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. And today, we're going to see the fifth of those letters that goes to the church in Sardis. That's where we're going to be this morning. But before we look at the contents of that letter that Jesus wrote to that real church... I want to orient us to the idea that we're going to be exposed to there. And that idea has to do with reputations. Now, let's, let's be honest for a moment. We care what others think of us. Now, some of you care more than others. But all of us, to one degree or another, care what other people think about us. We care what our family thinks about us. We care what our neighbors think about us. We care what those who we work with think about us, those on our teams that we participate on, uh, what our friends think about us. We care what our reputation is. But let's be real for a moment. There are times where reputations don't match reality. There are times when someone looks awesome, but they're really a mess. And there are times when people don't look like a lot is going on. In in reality, there are very deep waters that are flowing through them. And so our perceptions of people's reputations have their limits. And that's because our perspective is limited. But you know whose evaluations of people and churches is always right? Jesus' evaluation is always accurate. Because unlike us, he doesn't just see the outside. Jesus sees the inside. Unlike us, Jesus can't just ask the friends around how things are going. Jesus actually sees to the core and the heart of the matter in each and every one of us. And so Jesus dictates a letter to the church in Sardis, And he wants to talk to them about the discrepancy between their reputation and their reality. And this letter ends with the great statement, let he who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because even though this letter was was given to a particular church in a particular time, it's preserved for us because I believe that there is something in this letter for you and I to hear and be challenged by as well. And so let's look at this letter to the church in Sardis that is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, Jesus is dictating this letter, and he begins it this way. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, friends, in these six verses this morning, we're going to see three things as we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us today from this letter that Jesus dictated to the church at Sardis. So what are those things? Well, the first thing that we need to see is this. Jesus sees from the inside out. Jesus sees from the inside out. Now, we see this as this letter begins with acknowledging their reputation. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, he says, I know your reputation, and that reputation is really positive. Well, where did that reputation lie? Well, the reputation came from their experience with people in the community. In other words, the good people of Sardis would have looked at the church at Sardis and said, those are some decent folks. We like those people. That that church seems like a a group of, of good people there. That that reputation also might have come from inside the church at Sardis. They might have looked at each other and said, hey, we're pretty cool, right? Not not how great thou art, but how great we art. Maybe there was a little bit of that being sung inside of their church. Their reputation, even among themselves, might have been very positive. And it's also possible that their reputation among the other churches was positive. In other words, these other surrounding communities, the church at Ephesus and the church at Thyatira and the church at Pergamum might have been looking over at Sardis and going, now those people over in Sardis, they seem to have their stuff together a little bit. So the reputation at the church in Sardis was positive. It was of a living and a vibrant church. But Jesus doesn't rely just on the reputation. Jesus doesn't just ask for three letters of reference from one from inside the community and one from a neighbor and one from a neighboring church in another city. Jesus actually sees deeper than that. And this is made clear in the introduction. Remember, Jesus, as he introduces himself as the author of these letters, he doesn't just say from Jesus, but he highlights an aspect of his character so that they understand where he's coming from. And so to the church at Sardis, Jesus says, I am the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, we talked about this back in chapter 1. The seven spirits is a reference to the full Holy Spirit of God. Seven, the number of completion. Jesus here is saying that I am the second member of the Trinity, and I work hand in hand with the third member of the Trinity, that is the Holy Spirit. But there's a specific aspect of the Spirit's work that I believe also is hinted at by the seven spirits. And we'll see this a little more in detail when we look at chapter 5 of Revelation, but I want us to see this verse today. In chapter 5, John is seeing a vision of heaven, and he sees the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ in heaven. And this is what he describes. He says, "...between the throne and the four living creatures, 
And among the elders, I saw a lamb, Jesus, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So we see a connection between the spirit and the ability of God to see beyond skin deep. The ability of God to see not just the reputation, the ability of God not just to see the outside, but to see the inside of each and every one of us. We see this description of Jesus here. Now, when we begin to let that settle into our soul, that Jesus can see right through our reputation, right through the facade, and he can see the inside of us, there are really one of two different kinds of reactions that might inspire. One reaction is that we might be encouraged. We might be encouraged. Jesus sees past the reputation to see who we really are. If you have ever been maligned in your character in any way, and yet you're walking with God, know that he knows who you really are. He sees past your reputation. He's not just asking your neighbors about you. He knows you. And this is true also of congregations. Jesus doesn't just look down at the earth and see who's got the biggest parking lot. But Jesus wants to know what is going on in the interior life of the people inside of the church. He doesn't just rely on the reputation. So those that might feel like they're a part of a smaller movement but are faithfully walking with God, be encouraged that God is at work. And those who might feel maligned, be encouraged God sees you for who you really are. But there's a whole other category, and that is those that might not be encouraged but those who might be terrified or frightened because Jesus does not rely merely on our reputation. Because if we've been around the church long enough, we can convince people that we're spiritual because we know how to play the game. We pray long, beautiful prayers in public, even though we don't pray them at all in private. We answer biblical answers at Bible study, even though we don't read it for ourselves. We give great advice to others, even though we don't follow it ourselves. Now, this is not the reality of all of us. But at different points in time, we might struggle in different ways where our reputation does not meet our reality. Jesus speaks to the church at Sardis and he says, I'm not relying just on your reputation, but I know you for who you are. I have the spirit of God revealing to me you from the inside out. Now, how would the church at Sardis have have heard this idea that Jesus knew their reputation? Well, based on what Jesus says next, I'm guessing they were terrified. Because Jesus' statement was this, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. But you're dead. Now, what did that mean, that they were dead? Well, we don't get a ton of detail about this. I do think there are hints, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But We don't know exactly what all that implied. And we can imagine a number of different scenarios of what it might have looked like to to look alive on the outside, but to be spiritually dead on the inside. But I believe there is at least one aspect of what Jesus intended in this that is hinted at in the text, and I want to highlight that for our time of study today. And that leads us to our second point. And that second point is this. Jesus wants to hear from the silent church. He wants to hear 
from the silent church. Now, this church that existed in Sardis, they were going along and they were not criticized the way that the other churches were. You know, these other churches that we've seen, these letters that Jesus dictated, they were criticized for things like having this aberrant theology that was influenced by the Nicolaitans or tolerating this prophetess Jezebel that was leading many astray or a lack of, of their first love. We see none of those kinds of, of statements leveled towards this church at, at Sardis. And yet, Jesus here calls them dead. What's going on? Well, I think we need to think a little bit about what was happening in some of the other churches. In these other churches, there was opposition that was impacting those churches. In other words, as they were living out their faith in Christ, it was getting them into trouble with the local authorities. Now, throughout this area of the world at that time, there were two different human foes of the church. One group that was opposed to the church were the Jews who were looking at the Christians and saying they are not a part of us. We've seen this in other letters to churches where Jesus refers to the synagogue of Satan. It was this idea that there were some, uh, some Jews who were opposing the work of the church. A second group that was opposing the work of the church was the Romans. And they were the ones who were talked about in other places that things like um, a st- statement that they lived in the city where Satan dwelled where there was this pagan worship going on in these cities and where Caesar was worshiped as God. Now, churches were trying to figure out how to navigate in a world with these two different kinds of opponents. And Christians were figuring out that there was something going on with the Jews. In other words, the Jews had been given special status by the Romans. And that special status was the Romans knew that the Jews could not be forced to worship Caesar as God that they would have no success at that. So they gave them an exemption on that very thing. And as long as someone was considered a Jew, then they were not forced to worship Caesar as God. But as the Jews began to step away from the Christians, it exposed them to the persecution by the Romans. I think what was happening in Sardis was that Christians in this city were keeping silent about Jesus in order to be considered Jewish and thus protected from the Roman persecution. And Jesus was saying to them, I want you to be silent no longer. Now, this idea is something that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. When Jesus said, he said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus was saying was, those who are connected to me rightly will not stay silent about their connection to me. That if we are genuinely connected to God, if we are genuinely, genuinely following Jesus as our Savior, then those around us will not just see our lives change, but they will hear us speak his name. Now, I think that there was a lack of speaking the name of Jesus that was happening in Sardis, not just because of Matthew 10, but because of the echoes in Matthew 10 in Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis. Look at what Jesus says in verse 5. 
He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. We'll see later on that in this section, Jesus was encouraging the church at Sardis that how they needed to get right was they needed to be following him by proclaiming him. And if they proclaimed him in their city, Jesus would proclaim them before their father in heaven. It seems like the problem in Sardis was they had grown silent about their connection to Christ. And it was leading to them have a reputation that was favorable in their community while still be considered dead to God. Wearsby helps us understand this a little bit. He says, the impression is that the assembly in Sardis was not aggressive in its witness to the city. There was no persecution because there was no invasion of the enemy's territory. No friction usually means no motion. The unsaved in Sardis saw the church as a respectable group of people who were neither dangerous nor desirable. They were decent people with a dying witness in a decaying ministry. Friends, the question is, if Jesus calls out the silent church in Sardis, what might he say to us today? Is it possible that even today in our midst that we might be at times a silent church or that we as individuals might be silent Christians, decent people telling people to live better lives, but silent about Christ and his work, silent about our need to trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins? May we never be a church, friends, and may we never be individuals who merely take solace in the reputation of being a church attender or of having Christian as some identifier on our social media and not genuinely be those who are following Christ and willing to proclaim his name among those who don't know him. And so this morning as we gather here today, if you find yourself being convicted by this thought, how might we respond what, what are we to do if we are currently silent? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't just call them out, but he provides the path back. He, he lets them know how they are to respond and to repent. So what is that path back? Well, the first thing Jesus says is that he says that they are to wake up. I love this. He begins in verse 2. He says, wake up. Wake up, church. Now, here's the question. How do you wake up one that is also called dead? To say it another way, how do you wake up a dead person? Now, that's hard to do, right? I don't know how loud your phone is, but if you turned the volume all the way up and found the most irritating alarm sound you could find, it would not be loud enough or irritating enough to wake a dead person. If all of us gathered together and we made all kinds of noise and banged all kinds of pots and pans and yelled and screamed as loud as we wanted to, it would not cause a dead person to wake. And so what in the world is Jesus doing when he looks at someone who is dead, someone who he identifies accurately as a dead church? How can he call them to wake up? Well, friends, the answer comes in who's the one doing the asking. When Jesus calls us to wake up, he's not asking us to wake ourselves up. He is inserting himself in that role. 
He is the alarm clock. I love what is said in Revelation 3, 1. It says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God in one hand and the seven stars in the other. Does anybody remember who the seven stars represented? They represented the, the, the human representatives of those churches. Jesus looks at the church that is dead and he says, I hold the people in one hand and the spirit in the other. That which you are unable to rouse on your own, I am able to bring together to raise the dead. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to bring life to our mortal bodies as well. I love what Michael Wilcox says in his commentary on this. He says, Christ has in his hands both the needy church and the life-giving spirit. He can bring the two together not only to diagnose, but also to revive the dead. Jesus has this ability. And so this morning, as, as we're talking about this, if you find yourself being convicted, if you find yourself going, I, I need to wake up, know that that's not me talking loudly. And it's not the elbow of your friend or spouse hitting you in the ribs. It is the Spirit of God at work in your soul. It is Jesus himself rousing you from your slumber. The one with the stars and the Spirit coming together to wake us up to who he really is. I love what it says in Colossians chapter 2. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How does Jesus deal with our death? He nailed it to the cross and then offers us resurrection life. If you're here today and you have been taking comfort in the reputation of a church, but you've never placed your personal faith and trust in Christ, know that what Jesus is offering you is something amazing. He's offering you new life in him. He's offering to take all that you have done that is worthy of judgment and nail it to the cross with him so that you might be a recipient of new life. Jesus' plan for dealing with our death, his plan to wake us up, went right to the cross. If you've never trusted in Christ, this is God's response for you today. This is what it looks like for you to wake up. But for others of us, we've trusted in him long ago. We need to remember that. But not only should we remember that, as it says here, But also we need to know that after we have trusted in Christ, guess who has come to reside within us? The Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes to reside within us, it not only will provide spiritual fruit, evidence of our relationship with God, but it also will cause our mouths to open and us to speak Jesus' name to a lost and dying world. I love Jesus' comment in Acts 1.8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the earth. One of the products of the Spirit of God coming inside of us and giving us new life is that our mouth opens and we proclaim the glories of Christ among those that God gives us opportunity to interact with. Friends, Jesus calls to those who are convicted of our silence and he, he, he invites us to wake up to the work of his Spirit in our lives. But what else? 
Second thing he says is to strengthen what remains. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. What's he referring to here? Well, as we look at the next verse, we get a little bit of a clue. He says, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. What Jesus was saying was not everyone in Sardis was silent. Not everyone in Sardis was, was dead. But there were those who had genuinely trusted in Christ, and there were those who were genuinely giving testimony of Christ with their mouths in their city. Jesus said, we are not to see them as anomalies, but we are to strengthen their number. We are not to marginalize them and say, well, it's great that a few people are giving testimony to Jesus. But we are to join them, to strengthen their number in the testimony that we proclaim in our time and in our city. Jesus said that they are to strengthen in number. You know, we, we in our lives today, sometimes we'll, we'll see those who are wonderful witnesses and testimonies of Jesus that, that will talk about Christ with those around them. And we see them, and sometimes we're tempted to think something like this. I'm really glad that they're doing that so that I don't have to. You know, the church has got it covered because we have a couple of evangelists who are out there telling others about Christ. Or when it comes to global evangelization, you know, it's, it's covered because we got one or two missionaries out there. In our case, we got, you know, a few dozen missionaries out there on the field who are proclaiming. Therefore, the rest of us don't need to be a part of any kind of work like that because it's already covered. It's already handled. Those of us that want to think of evangelism in those terms, Jesus says, stop doing that. Wake up. Strengthen the number of those who are openly proclaiming Christ. Find in them your examples of what it looks like to truly follow me. I want you to think for a moment of of those in your life who are open and vocal testimonies of Jesus, those that, that you have looked up to. And I want you to think for a moment, not just about those that might have microphones on their faces. I want you to think about those who just in their natural sphere of influence are talking to others about Christ. We know these folks. They're, they're, they're insurance agents. They're, they're healthcare professionals. They're coaches of soccer teams and t-ball teams. They're, there's those that we know who are openly talking about Christ in their spheres of influence. They're, they're high school students. They're fraternity and sorority members on the campus of the University of Oklahoma. They're living in Walker 6 or something like that right now. We, we know some of these folks. And rather than us thinking of them and saying, well, I'm really glad they've got it covered, maybe today our understanding is, hey, we need to wake up and we need to strengthen their number that we would not be a part of the silent church. But Jesus would hear from us as well. I love Jesus says next, verse 3, he says, we are to remember, repent, and then I'll add respond. Jesus says in verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember the gospel. Remember that it's changed your life. Remember what I have done for you. And then repent. Well, what it, repent means to, to change their direction. If their direction had been to keep their mouth shut, what would repentance look like? To open their mouths. Jesus says, remember and repent. Proclaim me in the city. Follow me openly in the places where I have planted you. Friends, when we think about our lives in this week and we think about the examples in our lives, I just 
want, want to ask you, where does Jesus want you to speak his name this week? I don't mean that you have to give a sermon. I just mean, where will you just mention the name of Christ? Naturally, as you might tell someone about what he has done for you. You might tell them about something you've learned inside of his word. Where, where will you go public with your faith this week? Jesus wants to hear from the silent church. Well, there's a third thing that we need to see in these verses. That third thing is this. The third thing is that Jesus gives security to the believer. Jesus gives security to the believer. Now, as he has done in all of these letters, Jesus not only will tell them what they're, what's going well and what the challenges are, but he also is going to give warnings to many of these churches as well as promises. And so what are the warnings and promises that Jesus gives? We'll start with the warning. The first warning that he gives and the warning that he gives to this non-responsive church was this. We see in the second part of verse 3, if you will not wake up, Jesus says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus said, wake up, repent, respond, open your mouth, speak up, or difficult things are coming. Now, coming like a thief is something we need to think about for a moment. Do thieves come at your invitation? No, a thief is not waiting for your invitation. You don't need to put an Evite out on Nextdoor app saying, if you want to rob me, tonight would be a good night to do so. You don't do that, right? There's no invitation. Nor is, is there something that is scheduled where the thief says, and I'm going to come at this particular time. Jesus here refers to himself coming like a thief, not to say he's coming to take something that's not his, but to say that he will come at a time that we don't set. And he will come even without our invitation. Knowing that's the case, someone who is dead in their sins should not wait to respond to Christ in faith for their salvation that they may have personal life. And those who have found life in Christ should not wait to tell others about Christ because he will come at a time that we do not know. And at that time, it will be too late. Let those of us that have received this heads up from Jesus May we proclaim his excellencies and his truth and the salvation that is found in him now while there is time for those around us to repent. Jesus gives this warning. But then after giving that warning, Jesus is going to give a couple of different promises to these, to these believers. Remember that these promises are all to those who he calls the conquerors, those who conquer. And we've seen throughout this study how that is a reference to believers, those who are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He says to all of the believers, there's this promise that we will be clothed in white garments. Now, what is he talking about when he says that we'll be clothed in white garments? It's mentioned here a couple of times. We need to know that Sardis was a city that was known for its garments. This was like, you know, Paris or New York fashion of that region. Um, they made a lot of wool garments in this city. But the reference here to a white garment is something that would have been impactful to them as Romans. Living in the Roman world, people wore white garments on at least a couple of occasions. They would wear them as they gathered with a bride and groom at their wedding 
to stand with them, but they also would wear white garments at the time when a leader who won a battle uh, on, on the battlefield might come back to the city and was celebrated in triumph. The citizens of that city or of that nation would wear white as they stand with the victor in celebration. Jesus here speaks to the church at Sardis and he says, guess what? If you trust in me, we will celebrate together forever. Even if right now, your garment might get sullied a little bit. See, if they went public with their faith, they might find themselves at odd with the Romans and they might even have the blood of martyrdom on their robes. That was something that was keeping them hidden. But Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're with me, I'm gonna give you garments that will sparkle in radiance and we will celebrate forever because ultimately the victory is mine. The first promise is that of celebration with Jesus in eternity. But the second promise that that he gives to those who believe is this, that he will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, what is this that he's talking about, being, having your name blotted out of a book of life? Well, most cities of the ancient world had a book where everyone's name who lived in that city was written down. And when people would die, they would remove their names from that book. But it wasn't just cities that had these kinds of books. There were books like this also that existed in the synagogues. And so the Jewish synagogue would have a book and the the faithful members of their community would have their names written in this book. And if their name was in the book of the synagogue, then they probably would receive protection from persecution by the Romans. And so it seems from what we have seen already that the Christians were afraid of their name being blotted out of that book. And come to find out there was reason for them to be concerned. In the first century, there was something called the 18 Jewish benedictions, 18 prayers that were prayed at the end of the day. And one of those prayers that was prayed by Jews of the first century went something like this. May the Nazarenes suddenly perish and may they be blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled along with the righteous. At the end of every day, they would say, may the Nazarenes suddenly perish. Now, who are the Nazarenes? They're not talking here about just those who lived in the city. They're talking about those who followed the Nazarene. Who was the most famous Nazarene? Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, there there were prayers being prayed that, that the followers of Jesus would have their names blotted from the book of life. Their names would not be listed among the righteous in the annals of the synagogues of the cities. That was one of the commitments that the persecuting Jews were having on the church. And no doubt the church was afraid of what would happen if their name was blotted out of that book. But Jesus writes to them and says, hey, guess what, guys? If you follow me, if you talk about me, you may not be invited to a few parties and you may experience some difficult things and there may be a few books that you, your name is not included in, but the book that matters most Your name will be there forever and ever. And Jesus said, I will be in heaven. And when I see you, I will tell my father and the angels and everybody that you're with me. What a promise. What hope. Friends, how often do we shy away from proclaiming the gospel? 
because we want to keep our name in someone else's book. Jesus says, those with me, your, your name is in the book that matters most, and it will never be blotted out. What we gain following Christ is always greater than what we lose. Jim Hamilton talks about applying this, and he, he talks about it this way. He says, to apply this means to recognize that Jesus is bigger than anything you fear. It means recognizing that he is better than anything that pleases you. It means knowing that if you have him, you have everything that you need. Once you wake up to this. Friends, Jesus wants to hear from us. He wants to hear from the silent Christian. He wants to hear from the silent church. And the world needs to hear from him through us. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, thank you so much for just this incredible passage again that encourages us that, that you see beyond our reputation. You see who we really are. Lord, when, when you look and do an evaluation on our lives, may you find that we are not just people who hide behind the reputation of a church, but we are people who are genuinely trusting in you, and that is leading us to, to talk about you to those around us. Lord, may we be a, a vocal witness and testimony to your name in our city and in the world. May you give us the grace and the mercy to follow you in this way. We thank you for your promises and for your hope and that it is alive in Jesus' name.